Welcome to MuggleCast episode 414. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. On today's episode, we're discussing a big chapter in Half-Blood Prince, Horcruxes. Finally, we're finally getting some answers. Wood, wood. <laughs> but uh, first, I want to catch up everybody on a news item. So we've been talking about <gasps> Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. And we now have a first look at five of the beasts that will be encountered. Should I see if I can remember them off the top of my head? <laughs> the creatures? Well, yeah. they were... Yeah, go ahead. Do you remember them? They announced one creature each day this week. What were they? Fluffy. Cent- centaurs. Mm-hmm. I won't go to the one that's the big reveal, apparently. Yeah, save the best for last. Um... Was were unicorns in there, or no? Did I make Aunt. no? All right. Aunt. They used a a plant though, which I didn't really consider to be a beast. It's not a creature, yeah. Devil snare. The devil snare. snare. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting choice, wasn't it? And and mm. they posted a picture of the devil snare, and it's just roots. You're like, wow, roots! <laughs> I can't wait to fly to Florida to see that. Oh, it was the <laughs> uh, the Cornish pixies. Yes, fan favorite. And they are flying around the Ford Anglia, it looks like. Mm. And then the big beast reveal was the blast-ended Scroot. And credit to the listeners who told us that they had heard that this would be the beast we hadn't seen before appearing on this ride. So this is a creature we haven't seen in the movies. It was a creature concocted by Hagrid, right? (laughs) On Pottermore, it says it's a dangerous and illegal cross between a fire crab and a manticore. Mm. And the thing looks pretty horrific. <laughs> the posters that Universal has been sharing all look like they are from the actual attraction, except for the blast-ended Scroot. So maybe that one isn't ready yet. Doesn't it look like a mock-up to you guys? Oh, good God. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So um, apparently it's going to emit odors and breathe <laughs> Or not breathe fire. I guess fire might be coming out of its tail as well. Yeah, I read so, that. I read that about the odor. It says uh, the animal is eight feet long with a ten foot tail. Ten foot tail creates fire as well as a very powerful and signature odor. If that odor is not like fresh cut grass, I don't want to have it on the ride. <laughs> like I don't want them to like pump smells at me. To, like unless it smells like burnt toast, I don't want it anywhere near me. Like on that ride, you know. Giving me the... I'm going to go ahead and guess it's a bad smell. So you might not be able to ride this thing, unfortunately. I'm like, what is the point? This is a roller coaster, not like this stop and smell the roses. No, Eric. It's a, an immersive experience. Yeah. You have <laughs> you have to take in everything that comes with If you're out in the Forbidden Forest, you think it's going to smell like roses? <laughs> yeah, there's big spiders in there. Smell this burnt toast looking manticore... <laughs> fire crab thing i i don't know now i'm hungry where is its <laughs> this head looks like huh where is its head it, it, it yeah it like doesn't have a head does it i feel like <laughs> i kind of see a face yeah but like i don't know i can't tell if the face is on the side where the tail's coming out of or if it's <laughs> on the opposite side because I feel like I see facial features on both sides. And I'm also wondering if this was like based on concept art from the movies at one point. I wonder if this had ever been dreamed up by the Harry Potter film team. Or was this Universal 
working with Team J.K. Rowling in 2017 or whatever to dream this up. Hmm. Well, now they can just use this for the Fantastic Beast series if they've already created it. It's true. Yeah. It kind of does remind me, it bears like a passing resemblance to the Crumplehorn Snorkak when the Crumplehorn Snorkak ignites its horn, except this whole thing's body is like an ignited Snorkak horn. You know, I don't remember these things being eight feet wide in the books. I actually thought they were like little baby things. Right. So I was surprised. They started out that way, right? Because in Care of Magical Creatures, Hagrid had them raising them. Yeah. Yeah. From being mm. babies, right? I'm not making that up. I think you're right. I no, confuse I these and the um, those those bubo tubers or the uh, scroot. No, yeah, wasn't there like these slimy larval creatures that they're taking care of at some point? Am I crazy? Um, at some point, that sounds possible. I'm seeing that Pottermore has also had a some concept or artwork of a blasted scroot and. It doesn't look like this, but it also looks a lot smaller. So, I don't know. Anyway, it, it... it Oh, yeah. And then there's another piece of art on Pottermore in which the students are with Hagrid and they are all trying to take care of the blast-ended scroots. And again, they look like, they look like they're a lot smaller. So, um, so, yeah. I think that's cool. It, it certainly makes the ride a little more interesting since we haven't seen this creature before and it's like we're getting introduced to a new official part of jk rowling's world so i guess that's cool it does kind of beg the question though again about this whole immersive experience something like forbidden journey not being a roller coaster you can take the time to you know kind of hit every corner and see now the dragon's coming now there's dementors now there's a spider it seems like they've tried to do the same thing or are trying to do the same thing but with a roller coaster. So do you guys think there'll actually be like, go through a loop-to-loop, then stop at the stop, and all of a sudden Cornish Pixies, and then go down a hill, and then all of a sudden stop? Do you think they're actually going to interrupt the ride to show us this? Because roller coasters are supposed to go by in like two minutes, and you barely like see anything or have time to like experience this the way that it seems like they want us to experience this. I feel like this could end up being a lot like the mummy ride. Have you guys ever ridden that mm-hmm. at Universal? Yeah. Um, it's the same kind of experience where it is a roller coaster, but it's immersive in that there are a couple of stops throughout the ride. And it's actually a really good ride. So yeah, good point. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm thinking like the cars or fast track ride at Disneyland and Disney World where you start off going through a couple different show scenes sort of slowly and then at the end is the big high speed part of the ride. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I Universal also said this week that they're building they call it a real forest, but I don't know if it's a real forest if you're building the forest, but they're going to have <laughs> 1200 trees and I I'm sure there are going to be other beasts in there that they're going to keep a surprise. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's probably going to be a lot to look at, and you're going to have to ride it multiple times to really see everything. This also reminded me that uh, Fluffy was released into the Forbidden Forest, but then we never saw him again. And now you get to. Fluffy looks really great. Oh, yeah. Oh, and by the way, apparently that blast-ended Scroot is like an animatronic. Huh. And Universal says it's the best one they've ever built. (laughs) <laughs> I think they said any theme park has ever built. Wow. And Disney's built some cool ones lately for Avatar. 
and probably for Star Wars. So it'll be. I, I'm actually wondering if Fluffy like moves because that would be terrifying. Mm. Why wouldn't he? Anyway, uh, we also wanted to get to some voicemails today, but first I just wanted to give a shout out to some of our newest patrons. We've had a lot of people join us recently over at patreon.com slash mugglecast. Ricky, Ikra, Alex, Caroline, Michelle, Tatum, George, Michelle, Kelly, Christy, Carol Ann, Lee, Alexandra, Ashley, Erica, Rosa, Kathleen, Heather, Za, Becky, Katie, Jane, Jonathan, Aisha, Grant, Christine, Andre, Tara, Dana, Rachel, Maddie, Taylor, Jessica, John, Jean, Manon, Marissa, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks to everybody who's joined us recently over at patreon.com slash <laughs> Andrew, you sounded like an elementary school teacher taking roll call on a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say I'm like a parent yelling at them. I'm sorry that I sounded like I yelled at you. <laughs> All right. And um, people who pledge over at patreon.com slash get access to tons of benefits like bonus MuggleCast, like our exclusive private Facebook group, the links line in which we get your feedback about a topic in the wizarding world, and then potentially read your feedback on air. And then we do a physical gift every year. And this year we are also doing signed album art again. Laura, how's, how's that going? Are you... Uh... Still signing away? I am getting very close to the end, mainly because I know I have to have them to you by May. So, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, like last night I sat down and I was doing some more. My hands started cramping up and I was like, all right, maybe I'll I'll resume tomorrow. (laughs) Uh If only you had a quick quotes quill. I was thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have some voicemails to listen to. Our first one responds to our recent chapter-by-chapter discussion. Hey, MuggleCast, this is Eva. I wanted to call in because I don't appreciate you dissing on my boy Slughorn so bad for (laughs) his role that he played in who Voldemort ended up becoming. I just wanted to do a real quick point of clarification that Voldemort has already created a Horcrux um, or they think that he's already created a Horcrux by the time that he has that conversation with Slughorn. Um, I think that is evident later in this book. Um, but I think we need to give Slughorn some grace just because he is a people pleaser. He likes to collect shiny, bright things, and uh, Voldemort was a charmer, so he would have um, appealed to Slughorn very greatly. Um, that's all. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Have a good day. Were we a little rough on Slughorn last week? I don't know. I don't disagree with any of what Eva just said. I think that's all pretty accurate. But I also think that it's Slughorn's biggest weakness. And that's exactly what made him susceptible. I mean, obviously, it it's not reasonable to say, like this is all Slughorn's fault because probably Voldemort could have figured this out on his own if Slughorn hadn't wanted to talk to him. Um, But Slughorn certainly made the conversation a lot easier. And I also think that she's right that uh, Voldemort already had a Horcrux. I think that the main point of this discussion, we'll get into it in this chapter, was to find out how many times he could split his soul. Right. So. Exactly. I think we were giving Slughorn a bit more of a hard time because he's using house elves as poison taste testers. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
screwed up. <laughs> but uh, I agree with what Laura said about Slughorn later on. We'll talk about exactly how measured Tom Riddle was in his approach to the professor and how disturbing it really was. Harry almost uh, admires the way in some respect that Tom was able to extract this information from Professor Slughorn. He's very, very tactical in how he goes about it. And I think Slughorn was just ripe for the picking, right? He's sitting there with his feet up on his uh, ottoman and he's eating his candied pineapple and Tom just set the poor man up just like he did for plenty of other people. Yep. All right, here's our next voicemail. This one's close to two minutes, FYI. So settle in. Hey, MuggleCast. I just had a question relating to uh, Draco Voldemort in the, the Room of Requirement. With how much use the Room of Requirement must have been getting uh, after Voldemort placed the, the diadem in it, um, if I remember correctly from Book 7, the diadem was the only thing in that particular iteration of the rumor requirement when Voldemort uh, kind of placed it in there as the shrine, but we go back there, you know, 40, 50 years later, and it's just cluttered with stuff. Draco's been in there doing, um, fix, fixing his vanishing cabinet. Um, and it really kind of makes me wonder, too, you know, um, whether Voldemort told somebody about the rumor requirement while he was there, if Dumbledore kind of figured out, you know, that that might be a hidden place for a Horcrux, um, because we remember Dumbledore did tell Harry about, um, reference the rumor requirement in book one at least. Um, and it also makes me wonder, you know, what kind of hands-on, hands-off boss Voldemort might have been on the, the task that he set Draco to. Um, you know, if he had been asking the right questions, he could have easily figured out, you know, that uh, Harry um, and the Dumbledore's army had been using this room to, to train the same room that he had or a different iteration of the same room that he had used to hide one of his horcruxes. And he could have figured out as well uh, through one of his own Death Eaters that this room um, not only was, was being used again, but was, was common knowledge um, at Hogwarts. Just wondering what your thoughts on that might be. Thanks. Yeah, I don't think we ever heard if Tom Riddle shared what he knew about the Room of Requirement. And I also find it really interesting that Voldemort was um, so hands-off in the present day that he didn't even know that Draco may have known, or that Draco didn't clue him in on the fact that Harry was on to him. I have a couple of thoughts here. So one, didn't Voldemort give Draco this plan as more of like a punishment to Lucius? Right. So I guess I'm wondering, I'm not sure how successful he actually expected Draco to be. If it's intended to be a punishment for his father. I mean, we see how scared Narcissa was in the beginning of the book, which is why she forced Snape to make the unbreakable vow. Um, so that leads me to believe that Voldemort wasn't necessarily expecting Draco to succeed. Um, and then also, I think that we see Draco's reticence to rat Harry out to Voldemort in book seven 
when the Snatchers catch them in the forest and Bellatrix is trying to get Draco to identify Harry and he's kind of like waffling on it, even though we, we do kind of suspect that he can tell. I don't think that he necessarily wants Harry to die. <laughs> mm. And I think that's that's the whole crux of Draco's development in this book. I feel like we see him uh, handed way more, like he sort of bites off way more than he can chew. And he realizes it progressively over this book and becomes more and more like emotionally unstable as a result of it. So I'd be curious to hear uh, y'all's thoughts at home about that i agree with what you're saying i think that voldemort did task draco with what we would all consider to be an impossible job right it he's supposed to kill dumbledore it nobody would be able to do that who is 16 years old so I also don't think then that Voldemort would take that much stock in checking in with Draco to see how things are going. At least we don't really get much of that during this book. So it's almost like he gave him the task. Here you go. I'm going to go off and and worry about other things that I need to focus on. The things that are actually going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and as it pertains to what Voldemort saw when he went to the room requirement, I don't think we actually have that from anyone or anywhere. The idea that the room was empty when Voldemort put the diadem in it. Um, I always thought it was quite the opposite that, you know, the room where I where you put things was mostly filled over the centuries that Hogwarts has been around. You know, people, I assumed, had been using that room. So it's not just like in the last 40 years, a bunch of people needed to store their stuff there. I would have assumed this was thousands of years of buildup. And for that reason, I've always kind of felt that Voldemort was a little silly, uh, thinking that he's the only one who would find this room or that the, the room was a safe place to put the diadem because of how many other people were clearly, clearly in there before. So... That was kind of my my all impression. And then the other thing is that Hogwarts, you know, the room of requirement could use a refresher on how specifically it works, but it pulls all these items from other places um, or, you know, a lot of what it builds, you know, you need exactly uh, come from other places. So it's not necessarily that all this stuff was, you know, individually put there by some person. Hogwarts is sort of, you know, pulling it from based on the needs of the person conjuring the room. Mm-hmm. All right, next voicemail. Hi, Michael Cass. Um, my name is Jordan, and I'm 17, so I thought that I would be qualified to give feedback about Harry's dreams that y'all talked about last week. Um, some of you guys said that it was creepy that he was thinking about that or, like, unnerving, or but I thought that it was just kind of like the most teenage response to having a crush, like, ever. I'm pretty sure that everybody at least wants, like, Harry's 16 in this book. Like, he's younger than me now, which is weird. But (laughs) I will admit that I have thought, hmm, maybe if so-and-so would just break up with his girlfriend, then everything will fall in line, and then we'll live happily ever after. So I don't think it's creepy, and I don't think it's, like, rapey. I think it's just him being a teenager with teenage hormones. Thanks for all that you do. I love listening every week. Uh, Bye. 
Thank you for your honesty, Jordan. And I agree with you, but my fellow co-hosts here, they don't dream. They don't dream like us, so they don't understand what it feels like. I think like. we all agreed to dreaming once or twice. I was actually defending that point before, but I, I really love this voicemail. It's a good kind of – it's just that's – I think this this voicemail does what voicemails are supposed to do. Gives us a fresh perspective, one that we ordinarily would not have. You know, how long has it been since we've been 17? Let's not answer that. Um, <laughs> but it's a nice reminder, honestly, that dreams mm-hmm. do exist. <laughs> That there are high school crushes still going on. <laughs> yeah, still going on in these days. It's it's actually honestly nice that Jordan connects to the book in this way and is like, oh, that's incredibly realistic. Because it's been so long, I forget thinking whether or not it was incredibly realistic. All right. We have another pretty entertaining voicemail. Hi, MuggleCast. This is Jacob from Virginia um, calling in response to the conversation about Star Kids' 10th anniversary and... Um, Hufflepuffs being particularly good at finding. And, you know, I loved the conversation about it. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years since that idea first entered our brains. And you mentioned that J.K. Rowling addressed it at one point, and I couldn't remember that. And as I was trying to think, you know, what has she ever acknowledged that? I just immediately thought, oh my gosh, well, she's released this, or she started this new series called Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. <laughs> and she's made our protagonist a Hufflepuff. So I'm a teacher. I know that correlation is not causation, but it just seems like a great coincidence to me that you know our hero, Newt's commander, has written a book on finding magical creatures, and he's a Hufflepuff. So um, I thought that was a fun note. I... Uh, uh, I laughed a lot. Um, <laughs> thanks for the great work. Um, I love the conversations that you all are having. I also love hearing Laura's perspective on things. Um, I think it was a great idea to uh, bring her back to the show. All right, enough of this so, voicemail. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I need I need my ego stoked a little bit. <laughs> no, I thought that was genius, the point that Jacob brought up. Yeah. I doubt that's what J.K. Rowling was thinking, but it's a perfect connection. I also just love that Hufflepuff is finally getting some love, Mm -hmm. you know, in in that they have a protagonist and that character is not a joke. I feel like for the longest time, the perception of Hufflepuffs was that like, oh, it's kind of the joke house. It's the lame house. I say this seriously. It still is. It still does have that perception. I don't think it, but it always gets a bad rap. And Newt is kind of a joke. (laughs) I mean, he's incredibly accomplished. He's in, no, he's incredibly accomplished as a wizard. Anytime somebody fires a spell at him, he can fire it back. But like, he's a big goofball. A little bit, a little bit odd, a little bit off. Middlehead. He's middlehead. <laughs> I, I remember how exciting it was in that very first or maybe second Fantastic Beast trailer when Newt opens up his suitcase at Customs in New York and you see his Hufflepuff scarf. That was like a big moment for Hufflepuffs yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Because, as Huge. as you say, well, they're finally getting some uh, representation. One more voicemail today, and this is a chicken soup. Hey, Muggle Casters, this is Katie from Kansas City, and I have a chicken soup for the Muggle Cast Bowl for you. I've been listening to your podcast for over ten years, and in those years, this podcast has meant something different to me at various phases of my life. Back in February, I had my first baby, and having a newborn is challenging enough. But the biggest thing I struggled with was the feeling of isolation that comes with breastfeeding. 
You can educate yourself on what goes into it, but there's nothing that you can do to mentally prepare for the exhaustion, frustration, and mental strain that can come along with it. I ended up finding solace in your podcast. I never stopped listening to it, but something changed in what it meant to me. I listen to it while I'm nursing, and it makes me feel like I'm still part of this community, that I'm talking to old friends. So thank you for doing what you're doing. I look forward to many more episodes. I'm so glad Laura is back. Keep up the great work. You don't know what you mean to so many of your listeners. Thanks. Bye. Well, thank you, Katie. That's very sweet. Oh, this yeah, is beautiful. Yeah. Laura, tw- two voicemails in a row for you. <laughs> Did you pick these? I know. You're on cloud nine. <laughs> I know. I'm just waiting to get my title of Voice of Reason back. I know I have to work a little bit <laughs> more to title? get that. Who would award but, you? No, you're there, Laura. You can give it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. You, why would? It, why was it even taken away in the first place? I, I assumed that it it rotated amongst the panel during my <laughs> oh, long <okay>. absence. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely not. <laughs> Though I'm very happy now. I can check. Um, listening to our podcast while be- breastfeeding off of the list <laughs> of ways people listen to the podcast <laughs> of ways people listen to the show it is always actually really great to hear how people are listening to the podcast because there's so many different scenarios you can be in while listening that's what's so great about podcasts you can listen to them anywhere while doing most things i loved what katie said too about not feeling you know the isolation as much while listening to us it's th- that sort of thing is exactly what we like to hear mm-hmm. um and it just you know brings warmth to our cold dead hearts yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> all right a couple more pieces of feedback here this piece of feedback is regarding our discussion on chapter 21 the unknowable room francis writes i agree with what you were saying maybe some storylines were left out in the final cut as this does not seem to be the strong tonks we met in book five but when listening to your discussion it got me thinking even though we do not know this at this point in the book we later find out that tonks is in love with lupin but that is unrequited could this therefore be evidence that love is the most powerful magic all-consuming and can sap your powers that a character was so magically powerful a protege of mad eye moody could be affected so much by the effects of unrequited love is clear evidence for dumbledore's theory and going further is it interesting that this is going on at the same time that we as readers and harry are learning about how voldemort tried to make himself invincible and all-powerful a deliberate contrast would love to hear your thoughts on the show i use it as my weekend treat have it as a, after a stressful week at work teacher here another teacher um i i i like this idea it's a very um subtle way of jk rowling telling us that love is all consuming but yeah maybe that is the point jk rowling was making hmm. yeah i think so too and i think that's also reflected in the fact that her patronus changed right right so you know sort of feeling like the the burn of not having her feelings reciprocated changed a really powerful form of magic for her. So mm-hmm. I think I think the rest of this, uh, it, it adds up. Mm-hmm. It's a good thought. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, speaking personally, being hung up on somebody can absolutely be all-consuming. Thank God I don't have to deal with that anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's the one reason I'm never finding anyone again. I don't want to deal with that crap. <laughs> It's exhausting. I think that that's the thing that we can take away from this is that being that hung up on somebody and then having it, you know, be unrequited love um, 
that like it saps all of your energy out of you. You're not as good at your job as you typically would be. I feel like I usually would tend to sleep more Mm. (laughs) and just generally be kind of like in a cloud. So this makes sense. Yeah. I went through one long bout of unrequited love. And you might even be able to hear it in my voice in MuggleCast. Because <laughs> <laughs> MuggleCast is the one constant. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> Through thick and thin, it's still there. Sorry, Andrew. It's, it's still not over you, Micah. <laughs> one more email today. Micah, how about you read this one while I go cry about the love that we never had? All right. comes from Courtney in San Jose, California. After listening to your new episode, I was thinking about the idea that the other listener had that Bunty is more than meets the eye. I think they're onto something. I remember J.K. Rowling insisted Dobby be included in Chamber of Secrets movie when producers wanted to cut him because he played a larger role in the story to come. I think that was what um, I saw in a bonus feature. We've all been wondering why they would include such a meaningless character with only minutes of screen time with really nothing to add to the plot or character development. Knowing that J.K. Rowling has made sure to include characters um, and be presented to the audience for long-run plot involvement, I think it is spot-on that she would play a larger role, possibly being a spy or guardian of some type for Newt. So we like this email, but we think it was Creature who J.K. Rowling insisted be included, not in Chamber of Secrets, but in another movie because he would have a critical role in Deathly Hollows. Right. Right. So that would be Order of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. that he was almost cut from and yeah that's that's a great point so maybe the filmmakers were like uh joe <laughs> so uh can we talk with you for a minute about Bunty? uh she seems pretty useless and then she was probably like hey you remember how i told you to keep creature in because he seemed pretty useless yeah keep in bunty because she'll have a big role later on when she's revealed to be a spy. Probably costs less to put on screen, too. Um, but I will say, too, like playing the role of devil's advocate, the rotating role of devil's advocate that we all have here on the show amongst our panels. Um, it's possible that Bunty's in the movie just to fill the void that, that audiences won't um, so that audiences won't question who's watching his beasts while Newt is gallivanting in Paris. Maybe she just needed to tie that up a little bit because, you know, his entire study, once we're introduced to the whole basement, uh, all those beasts could technically live on their own, but they're kind of in captivity. And I think it would, you know, behoove J.K. Rowling to show that there is one other person who can kind of look after them while he's gone. So unlike the first film where he carried them in all in his suitcase and was like, presumably taking care of them during that time. This time he's physically away from the majority of his beasts. So J.K. Rowling needs a character like Bunty to say, it's okay, Newt's got an assistant. She can handle this. Is that that important to answer, though? It would be asked if she didn't answer it. You know what I'm saying? Like, if if Bunty weren't in the film, we probably, our number one thing to harp on, we'd probably be like, man, Newt totally abandoned, like, 50 of his best animals. (laughs) Would that be the number one thing we harp on? (laughs) I think so. Just to chase Tina to Paris, you know, it would be a crazy. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Okay. I think that we can't ignore the importance of the fact that Bunty was in the background of the magazine picture mm. of Newt, um, Lita, and 
I'm blanking on Theseus. Yeah, there we go. Theseus. Thank you. Have not had my coffee yet, y'all. Um, no, no. I, I think that including her in that probably sets us up for something a little bigger mm. down the road. There would be no reason to put her in that if she was just a throwaway character. At least that's my hope. Yeah, Eric. Why is she at Newt's book release party if she has to watch the beasts? Hmm. This was answered. This was answered in the documentation leading up to the film. It's in one of those companion books. Uh, that's where they met, apparently, that the success of Newt's um, book bred uh, widespread appeal, and that Bunty, who probably has a soft spot for animals or was interested in getting into that line of work, met Newt there in person and volunteered, uh, or sort of like a voluntold situation, that he needed uh, an assistant. And Newt completely oblivious to her obvious interest in him, brought her on as his assistant because it is a good idea to have somebody else at that moment. Now, what she's doing specifically in the photo with his uh, brother's fiance, it's a little ridiculous that she's that prominent, but I blame movie summarization uh, for the fact that she's that prominent in that photo. But they met at that book release party, according to official sources. You got me. That's really weird then that she would be in the photo <laughs> if they had just met but I'll, I'll believe you eric uh i just think it makes her more susceptible in the future because there's an actual image of her somewhere for somebody to come across whether that be grindelwald or one of his followers and bunty already seems to know that you know newt is dealing with some serious stuff um she she even talks about reaching out to the ministry when uh, they hear the uh, the crash arrival of Jacob and Queenie. So I think she's going to be somebody who is going to be potentially used against Newt somewhere down the line. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it's possible. Okay, thanks everybody for the feedback. And now it's time for our chapter-by-chapter discussion on Chapter 23, Horcruxes. And we'll start, as always, with our seven-word summary. And Eric, you can start this week. I hope none of you take issue with the order that I always write in. I'm just kind of like making it up in my head. I hope I'm not being unfair to any of us. No, I like I like the randomness and uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. never had a problem. Just checking. I don't want anybody to be mad at me. Well, nobody be mad at me for going first and using a word like secrets are discovered inside. The Slughorn. <laughs> it's an easy one. Well, I'm trying to think of what the word is. It's not his classroom. It's his office, I think. Office. There you go. Yeah. Is that your answer? Office? Yeah. Okay. I thought I thought memory was the obvious one, but inside the Slughorn memory. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That was like the easiest we one we've ever gonna... done until Micah got stuck. <laughs> Well, why'd you put me last, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I thought we were just going to say Horcruxes seven times. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be oh, or or list off the seven Horcruxes. That'd be fun. Mm. All right. Well, um, Mike, I guess do you want to lead this discussion? I think you put together the bones of it. Yeah. So this is one of the most important chapters, I think, in the entire series. Is it fair to say that? Yeah, how to bring down yes. Voldemort. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. Just because we go from you know, the memory 
to learning about horcruxes, to breaking down what all those horcruxes could potentially be. We're talking about love. We're talking about the prophecy. Dumbledore finally opens up in this chapter, way more so than I think he ever has. Uh, But it does start with a bit of compromised security because Harry is on his way back from Hagrid's hut. The front door of the school, it's open. He can just walk right (laughs) in. So clearly Felix is still doing his job until he gets up to Gryffindor Tower. And then apparently Felix has worn off because he goes up to the fat lady. And because it's such a late hour, she denies him entry. But not only does she deny him entry, she lies to him that the password that Harry gave was wrong. (laughs) And I'm thinking, you know, Harry, given who he is and the constant danger that he's always presented with, shouldn't she be fired from her job? I mean, this is this is negligence right here. By the way, y'all, Micah's notes are very sassy this episode, so just get ready for (laughs) sassy Micah. But, well, in this era of polyjuice... They should burn her painting. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) You literally say torched in the dock. I'm like, that's an overreaction. (laughs) Well, no, I feel like it was justified because we see polyjuice potion being used left and right, and presumably people like the fat lady are aware that this type of magic exists. It would be very easy to be pretend to be Harry. So this little layer of security where you just got to know the password isn't that hard of an ask. Well, it's not just that the password has changed. It's the idea that that's not true at all, that she just was cranky with him. So she told him the password had changed. That doesn't protect anybody. That's actually just real problematic. Like, I'm blown away because ultimately he's left to go off in another direction and that means he's out of bed past hours, which he shouldn't be. So the fat lady is actually enabling more bad behavior rather than just being – I mean, the Gryffindor common room is supposed to be a refuge to Gryffindor students everywhere. And if she's getting sassy because she doesn't like being woken up, like, that's her job. Like, she's turning him away. Where's he going to go? Yeah. He, she tells him originally he's going to have to wait in the corridor all night. Like – Really? Go get another so, job if you don't like being woken up in the middle of the night. I mean, I'm with Micah that that this is definitely a mark against her otherwise pristine record. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does make me wonder, does she get to choose this job? Like, it sort of seems like it's a role that she just happens to have and that there's not much choice involved in it. And maybe sometimes she just has her fill. Does she even get paid? Like, what's what's the compensation for this? Do in, they offer in wine? Yeah, like in painted wine. Yeah, like does she have a four hundred one k? But also, I think it's worth noting that she goes on and on about this is for security measures. But then, as Harry starts walking away, she yells out to the whole corridor, "No, no! I was just mad that you woke me up. The password is still." you know, whatever it was. And she just shouts that for the whole corridor to hear. Like, talk about security. Do you guys also think the front door being unlocked was a result of Felix? Like, that seems... I think so. That seems really lucky. I mean, that's a physical thing. The door is unlocked. It was Tonks, you guys. It was Tonks. She was supposed to guard that door, make sure that it's locked, but she's off sulking somewhere. It all ties in. And is that lock like one big deadbolt? Are there multiple locks? Yeah, I don't know. Because I think it needs a lot more protection than a single lock, personally. Yeah. Maybe it was Dumbledore, upon his return, just left it open. (laughs) 
forgot to close. <laughs> so another problem with this guy and how he handles security at Hogwarts. Yeah, because you would think Filch or somebody would be aware of the fact that the front door is open. I mean, I know it's not like today's modern day security where like an alarm would be going off somewhere because the front door is open, but it is a bit odd. I would chalk it up to uh, Felix Felicis though. But yeah. like I said, it wears off very quickly after that because Harry can't even get into Gryffindor Tower. But is that also Felix potentially still working? Does his luck kind of you know, pivot in that sense where he it's a good thing that he doesn't get in there because he hears that Dumbledore is back and he goes off to Dumbledore's office. Ooh, I guess that's the a question good theory. I like it that. Is, it is good, but did he need to present that memory that night? Mm. Not necessarily. I guess his plan was to do it first thing in the morning, right? Yeah. But let's let's keep with that. So as luck should have it, nearly headless Nick comes along and lets Harry know that uh, Dumbledore has returned. He heard from the Bloody Baron. And uh, Harry sets off for Dumbledore's office. And uh, Dumbledore definitely looks a little bit worn, a little bit tired. Um, and he does come across as, as a bit shocked that Harry was able to acquire this memory. I don't know if his mind is just somewhere else at the time, but mm. it's, a, it's a bit unlike Dumbledore. I, I don't think he would have tasked Harry with something that he didn't fully believe deep down that Harry was able to, to do. Yeah, and, and yet there's this writing in the, in the chapter that like for a moment or two the headmaster looked stunned. Then his face split into a wide smile. And then he's like, this is really great stuff, Harry. I knew you could do it. And it just sounds a little disingenuous. Like, I, I just got the impression that this was the last thing Dumbledore was expecting Harry to have. But I don't know. It's weird because he specifically impressed upon him at the time of their last visit how important it was that Harry gets this memory. So why is he dumbstruck, kind of, by this? I think an important thing to remember here is that he did just get back from a trip and it is the middle of the night. So maybe it's not the first thing on his mind right now. He was not expecting Harry to show up past midnight with the news he had been waiting for. So I think Dumbledore was just, you know, had his mind elsewhere that evening. And for Harry to come in and present this was just just shocking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we... Then quickly jump inside of of Slughorn's memory, and I think Eric was this you asking what class are they attending? Yeah, and you 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 asked this too during the seven word summary, like what room are they in? Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that we get into this memory. Slughorn says, "Oh, it's eleven o'clock. You guys better get going. Don't want to be caught out of bed." I'm like, "What class is at ten o'clock at night? What is going on here?" You know, Tom Riddle stays after class. And it seems to be a small kind of study group, but I'm wondering, it's not overtly stated. So what are our thoughts on, you know, what exactly this is? Is this the progenitor to the slug club? Is this a head of house just hanging with his Slytherin pupils? Like what, what exactly is going on there? I definitely interpreted this to be the slug club of the day. I did too. Because we hear all these prominent names, like we hear Lestrange and Avery and of course, Tom Riddle's there, and um, Slughorn makes reference to the fact that he's 
uh, the heir to Slytherin, right? So he's very clearly collecting all of these big names to have this meeting with, and they're all sort of like sitting around him and giving him all this flattery um, so that they can participate in school gossip. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think that's what this is. Yeah, because you are stunned, Eric, by what class it could be this late at night. And as far as we know, I think there just aren't any classes this late at night, unless it's like a stargazing class Yeah, for astronomy. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be interesting if the Slug Club had developed from being just Slytherins into being more inclusive of other houses (laughs) after Tom Riddle... um, leaves the school um, i love the idea that slughorn's like too many of these students are turning into bad people i gotta pull from other houses this is making yeah. me look bad <laughs> well it kind of ties into the next point here and slughorn and tom are having a conversation and slughorn talks about how tom would be fit for politics and and would do well at the ministry and tom disagrees but Slughorn uses the argument that it couldn't be plainer. You come from decent wizarding stock abilities like yours. And I thought this was, uh, and I don't mean to uh, go back at our our uh, voicemail from earlier in defense of Slughorn, but this is a little bit of ignorance on Slughorn's part. I still don't think that he's fully come to realize that there could be very good wizards or witches that don't come from wizarding stock. And maybe this doesn't happen to a little bit later on in his tenure. Um, And, you know, obviously Lily has not come through the school yet, but I just thought it was a bit surprising of his character, given his fondness for Lily and probably others that that don't have this sort of background. Yeah, well, I mean, this took place long before he would have met Lily. Right. So I think there's definitely room for him to have uh, broadened his mind a bit and become uh, more accepting of the fact that talented and powerful people come from all different backgrounds. That said, I think that we still see vestiges of this sort of like old world mentality from Slughorn, even as you pointed out, Micah, uh, just a few minutes ago, having house elves taste test wine to make sure it's not poisoned. (laughs) Um, I think that he is a really good example of something that we kind of all see and reference in our own day to day, which is this acceptance that when you're conversing with an elderly person, they may sometimes use language that makes you cringe because you're like, "Ooh, that's not okay anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's It's also a bit of reverse flattery kind of in a way. I think they're possibly is this enigma that surrounds Tom Riddle in his day about his parentage. And because he's an orphan, it's slightly mysterious. And, you know, I'm sure Slughorn knows that Riddle's an orphan, but I think in him saying this, it's clear due to your abilities that you come from good stock. It's a compliment. It's a teacher-student kind of compliment. And it shows how how much... um Tom is ingratiated in into you know Slughorn's confidences, which we know he utilizes in a hot minute. So I, I think that it just shows that Slughorn's really bought into the Tom Riddle cake here, and is yeah. really just in in his fan club, and it's not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, those are all good points. I think 
Um, but Tom ends up uh, using the word horcruxes, as we've heard in the, the previous memory. And I'm interested to know where Tom really learned about horcruxes in the first place. Because the way that he presents it to Slughorn is that he just came across the term. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was doing some reading into this and it looks like he got it from and we find this out in deathly hollows i think Mm. secrets of the darkest art that was a book available in the hogwarts library and then dumbledore pulled it at some point but not before tom had actually gotten his hands on it that's my Uh, impression mm. because according to what i've been reading that book actually goes into details about creating horcruxes Mm -hmm. And as was mentioned earlier by one of the listeners, it's likely that he had already created a Horcrux by this time anyway. So he's just looking to, is it validate what he's doing? Understand how far he could potentially go, you know, down the road of ripping his soul? Isn't it said by maybe Dumbledore that a book would not explain how to break your soul into seven pieces right so he wanted to get additional information and it's you know i hate to compare this to like everyday situations because it's a lot different (laughs) but (laughs) sometimes it is helpful to actually talk to somebody as opposed to relying on only a book you want to get some information by from somebody who is potentially an expert in a topic so going to slughorn or anybody who might know something is a good a good idea Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the the opinion it is specifically to get the opinion on on whether having seven of something would give you extra magical protection. But Slughorn, bless him, is squigged out by the idea of murdering so many people. You know that it would cause so Riddle doesn't really succeed in his goal, although he, I think, obviously gets enough validation to keep going and end up doing what he does. Um, but he does show his hand. And after all of this practice, I do love, you know, what you're saying, Andrew, about it being, uh, Harry admiring Tom for his measuredness. And, uh, I think we have Harry's insight that Voldemort was probably building up to this moment for weeks to really work this out. And we see its successes. It's true. He shows his hand a little bit, uh, for all time. But that works for the plot. But I think Voldemort gets what he wanted out of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I love this scene in the movie because Slughorn's face when Tom suggests Seven is just so pained. (laughs) Seven horcruxes. Tom, (laughs) what is wrong with you? I also love this scene in the movie because they stick with a lot of the same dialogue from the book. And it's really good dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also love this moment because it feels like such a great parallel to the last few weeks of Harry's life. You know, Harry's sitting here thinking about like, oh, yeah, Tom probably, you know, worked his way up to this moment for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is exactly what Harry just got done doing. So it's just another, I I think, really beautiful parallel between Harry's and Tom's stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really like that. That parallel. Andrew, you think there were numerous times in Tom's line of questioning that Slughorn should have told him to f- off. 
It's true, Micah. I did. Yeah. I mean, reading this again for the first time in a while, knowing everything that happens, knowing Slughorn's hesitancy to hand over this memory, he has reason to be embarrassed because Tom Riddle is really pushing for answers in this scene. I think he's a little... He's angsty. He's anxious to get some information. He is speaking out of turn to a teacher who you're supposed to have more respect for. There's just numerous clues here that he wants to actually create these horcruxes. And Slughorn really should have caught on to that. So it's disappointing, I guess, that Slughorn didn't stop himself. He just kept handing over this information because, oh, it's just a student who wants to learn some more information. Just just for academic yeah. purposes. No. The smallest consolation for me is in, in something I picked up just while reading this the most recent time is that I think it's stated very, very smallly, like it's a little nuance of this, that Slughorn finally sees Tom Riddle for who he is after this moment. So I, I think that because of like the greedy look on Tom's face or something, by the very, very end of it, Slughorn comes away with a slightly different understanding of who Tom Riddle is as a person. Mm. And he feels a little icky about this situation having occurred. Um, and that plants the seed for Slughorn eventually covering up this memory. Uh, that he he kind of sees Tom Riddle. There's no going back after you have this conversation with somebody. And I think this is, you know, really a real turning point for Slugh- for for Slughorn. Right. But I, I think... Tom does a lot to move the conversation along in the direction that he wants it to. And I don't necessarily think that that's the fault of Slughorn outside of him just, to Andrew's point, there should be bells and whistles going off in his head and he just stops the conversation. But anyway, there's something else that he says that struck me and... I'm not sure this was in the films, but it's a very interesting line given what we know now about the Deathly Hallows and about other characters in this series. He says wizards of a certain caliber have always been drawn to that aspect of magic, referring to horcruxes or just dark arts, really, really dark arts in general. And I wondered, like who? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I was thinking Grindelwald, right? Like, this yeah. is the right time period for that. Um, and I mean, I don't, I don't know how much Dumbledore, Dumbledore would have clued Slughorn in on this, but Dumbledore is another representation of this kind of wizard, right? Like, he has actively turned down positions at the Ministry because he recognizes that he is not the kind of person who should have that much power. Yeah. And obviously he was drawn to the Deathly Hallows. Mm. So. Do you think Grindelwald had a Horcrux? I feel like this is, this is part of the, the discussion we're about to have. I don't know. I mean, if I'm thinking about Grindelwald's portrayal in the movies, he certainly seems kind of torn, right? Like Dumbledore talks in this (laughs) chapter about how, like, the more that you rip your soul apart, the less human you become. Yes, yeah. When you do create horcruxes, you are known to start looking like Johnny Depp. 
with that face just falling apart. <laughs> no amount of makeup's going to save that. But knowing my biggest question, too, is now that we've seen Crimes of Grindelwald and now that we know there's this blood pact thingy, which operates kind of like a Horcrux, and Dumbledore had an active role in it, is there really a need for Grindelwald to also have a Horcrux? Would it seem as repetitive as every time somebody uses Polyjuice Potion <laughs> to sneak into the Ministry of Magic? Here's the thing, though. We need to remember when we're when we're framing it that way is that Grindelwald would have done it first. It's it's only because we've read Potter mm-hmm. that we would look at it from the lens of oh well we've already seen this before. Well, technically, yeah. you know this is really the the second time that we've seen it if Grindelwald did in fact create one because he would have created one before yeah. Voldemort maybe ever even existed. The reason I asked whether or not you guys thought he made one now is because in the text um slughorn says that dumbledore is particularly fierce about the subject of horcruxes that you wouldn't have found a book that had them in it and dumbledore has refused to talk about it dumbledore in the 40s has said that horcruxes are an off-limit topic at hogwarts dumbledore is not even the headmaster and he's banning this topic from school books why? What's what's the connection here that even in the 40s when Voldemort was a student, Horcruxes had to be banned from Hogwarts? Who had done it? Who who precipitated Dumbledore's stark reaction to forbidding this magic from being available? I like that point. Mm-hmm. But I would also just add it could potentially have just simp- simply been a matter of somebody looking into Horcruxes. Grindelwald maybe just could have considered them or or Tom could have just considered them once. I don't know. Somebody, because Dumbledore would realize that even just thinking about Horcruxes is probably very dangerous because of the lore of, oh my gosh, I could protect myself from death. Well, and also he's seen the effects the Deathly Hallows have had. And the Deathly Hallows are kind of like the other side of the same coin, right? Um, pursuing Horcruxes or Hallows is really about mastering death. And since he's already seen that issue with the Deathly Hallows, I could very much see him doing his research to find out if there is any other form of magic that could achieve a similar effect and just flat out banning it because he doesn't want to see that come to fruition again. But I also think it's a good theory that Grindelwald at the very least may have considered having one. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe Credence is a Horcrux. <laughs> no, he's a homunculus. That bad haircut. Yeah. Oh my god! Right. But there's clearly knowledge on the part of Dumbledore because he does say that he doesn't know any wizard to have created more than one. Yeah, but mm-hmm. he does know of somebody or multiple people who have done it. Hmm. Very weird. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what the spinoff books will be about one day. The search for all these people with Horcruxes. Mm. Just destroy them now, so you don't have to worry about them later. Would you all create one Horcrux? Just one? No. No. Because I'm not a murderer. Just one, though? I mean, just as like a backup plan. (laughs) Let's say you get hit by a car, then you can still live. No? Just (sighs) me? Okay. Um, right. I'm just noting to myself not to stay with (laughs) you. Next time I go to Chicago. Our 17-year-old listener, Jordan, is going to call in again and agree with me. Yeah, I've thought about (laughs) killing somebody to live once... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> an extra time. 
Could you imagine how many uh, Horcruxes could be created by uh, some of the characters in Game of Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why why they're motivated. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we, we do learn that Tom is after seven Horcruxes, and uh, we come back to the present day, and of course, this is beyond Dumbledore's wildest dreams. He he clearly knew something was up, and, and I think we finally get him to come clean a little bit with Harry. There, there's a lot of open conversation here, I think, and I mentioned this at the top of the discussion, more so than we've ever seen, maybe, between Harry and Dumbledore, just in terms of the info dump that we get. Um, there's a There's a little bit of time spent talking about the diary Horcrux, and that was really when Dumbledore got the sense that Voldemort had created Horcruxes to to keep himself immortal. And he did talk about how Voldemort regarded this Horcrux in a careless way. Um, but I thought, and maybe it was just the way that I read it, I thought it was more that Lucius Malfoy handled it in a careless way than Voldemort just kind of giving his diary off to the Malfoy family. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Because for, I mean, in uh, Mr. Malfoy's defense, he did not know that this was a Horcrux. Right. So for him to handle it carelessly, I guess he would maybe argue it wasn't so careless, thinking it was just some old diary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dumbledore makes the point that, you know, Lucius didn't know that it contained part of his master's soul. And that he did it to sort of achieve a dual purpose. One was to do away with um, a magical artifact that could have gotten him in a lot of trouble for having. And two, to implicate Arthur Weasley and either have him like demoted or fired at the ministry. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I genuinely love this chapter for its trip down memory lane here, where we mm -hmm. essentially recontextualize everything we've known about like the entire plot of book two, you know, for instance, which is a, I think for the most part, a huge book six to book two connection that book six really reinforms what we thought about what was going on in book two. The idea that the diary was not just an enchanted diary that Dumbledore specifically points to its ability to sap the life force of Ginny Weasley as saying, no, that, you know, this was a Horcrux. The idea that when we're getting introduced to Horcruxes, we've never seen or heard of them before, but yet have this whole book of one where we can go back and revisit. And like nothing inspired me more to reread book two than to see, to find out that like the diary was one of these things. Yeah. And it's just a great kind of full circle moment, like a great secret, you know, the, the curtain has been lifted and we now have, um, this insight just that we've been super, super close to Horcruxes all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Watching J.K. Rowling weave this all together and reviewing Dumbledore's thought process through all this is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We were introduced to Horcruxes in the second book, but had no idea what they were or how large of a role they were going to play down the line. And that's just J.K. Rowling. So keep an eye on Bunty. <laughs> <laughs> if, therefore, yes. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing, I think, in this conversation between Dumbledore and Harry, and 
I know he sets him up along the way of like, remember he collects trophies. We covered all this. This is where you get a lot of justification for the previous memories that Dumbledore and Harry went into, which I think is like also very good. Like it's why this book succeeds is you have a very clear picture of why Harry and Dumbledore were doing all this. But Dumbledore has sort of a throwaway line that says uh, that he doesn't believe Voldemort ever really made it to seven, that he was going to make Harry uh, Harry's death or the, the murder of Harry, the defining act that created his seventh and final Horcrux. Oh, and- shit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, what? Which, which part? Well, this is interesting because he does also throw Nagini into the picture and Harry asks a very important question being that Nagini is a living, breathing thing uh, as to if you could create a Horcrux out of that. And Dumbledore says, Basically, in, you know, the world of Horcruxes, it's highly discouraged to do something like that. <laughs> Never mind that, you know, creating Horcruxes in the first place is a problem. But Right. As if Tom cares about that. Exactly. And so this is where I started to really pick up on the fact that Harry himself and, and Dumbledore says a lot more that I think um, when he's talking about the prophecy that really leads you to think that Harry could potentially be a Horcrux himself. And the line was, he heard the prophecy and he leapt into action. This is referring to Voldemort. With the result that he not only handpicked the man most likely to finish him, he handed him uniquely deadly weapons. (laughs) It is Voldemort's fault that you are able to see into his thoughts, his ambitions, that you even understand the snake-like language in which he gives orders. And yet, Harry, despite your privileged insight into Voldemort's world, you have never been seduced by dark arts. And this is where it just clicked for me. And and I'll be honest, I don't remember f- from the first read through. And I, I this never crossed my mind that in reading this, that Harry would be a Horcrux. But reading these actual lines now, it's like, how could I have not thought that? Yeah. Right. Well, remember, it was a huge debate leading up to book seven, like, Friendships were broken over that. (laughs) (laughs) We can name specific ones. (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) Yeah. Personally, I never cared for the debate. I was just like, look, whatever happened. Books were sold on it. Yeah, I mean, potentially. (laughs) New York Times bestselling books were sold on it. (laughs) But I think that uh, it's kind of a question, I think, following book seven, that Harry was kind of an accidental horcrux you know, an unintended bit of soul that flew off. I think that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. And the way that this works for me, though, is however it is that you create a Horcrux, and J.K. Rowling has said she will never tell us, and I support that because somebody's going to bound to try it, Um, get their Warner Brothers $50 interactive wand, you know, together in a ceremony after they've murdered somebody close to them. try and say some spells i guarantee it'll you know in this crazy world somewhere in florida it will happen so (laughs) i'm gonna say that uh you know it's best we don't know but i'm assuming in general that there's a pre-ceremony and an after ceremony and whatever whether it's a potion an incantation you prepare your soul to be split beforehand i would say voldemort went ahead and did all that and so at the time of his downfall it kind of softened the i don't know there's probably a bread term to use for this but it it softened the soul to be split and that that was what kind of allowed 
you know, the transference between Voldemort and Harry to occur. Mm. I agree with that. Let's talk a little bit about some of these other Horcruxes, though. Sure. The ring. Uh, we finally get an explanation for Dumbledore's black hand. Mm -hmm. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty, but clearly somebody was tempted by power. We know that Dumbledore is in possession of the Elder Wand, and within the ring lies the Resurrection Stone. He had two of the Deathly Hallows in his possession at the same time. Yep. Yep. And it makes me wonder. I'm like, have you learned nothing? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. All he has to do is ask Harry for his cloak, which I think he does. I think when they go to the cave, he tells him to bring his cloak, which means that I think one point for a brief moment, they're all in the same room together or something. I'm not sure on that. But I, I love that he tells Harry that the ring is no longer a horcrux, but he says nothing about it still being the resurrection stone, this immensely powerful object to recall loved ones from the dead. Well, Dumbledore could never possibly reveal everything at once. I know, right? <laughs> could Dumbledore? But this is a pretty good chapter for Dumbledore in terms of revealing things, so can't <laughs> yeah. complain too much. I guess that's true. Could Dumbledore then have just rode off into the sunset, Eric, if he snatched the invisibility cloak from Harry? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I win! I don't know. Well, Dumbledore at this point in the book has kind of resigned himself to his fate. The curse on his arm, although he downplays it for Harry, will kill him. And so he's kind of been preparing all year to, to, to die. So I think at this point, if he were to grab all three Deathly Hallows, nothing would really prevent him truly from dying all the same. I wonder, though, what would have happened? He's clearly tempted by this Deathly Hallow, and it ultimately is the reason why he's... He, he, as you said, if if Malfoy doesn't come along to do the job, then this is going to kill him. And so his his quest for power really finally is what ends up doing him in. I think there's a misunderstanding that wasn't it the possibility of seeing Ariana again? That's that what I was him, thinking. Yeah, he, I think so. Yeah, I, I was talking more so larger picture because we know that he's always been in search of these hollows and uh, other horcruxes and and this goes to your point eric uh about how you know, we're we're finally seeing the payoff of harry and dumbledore going into those other memories harry correctly guesses that hufflepuff's cup and slytherin's locket are likely horcruxes and dumbledore adds nagini into the mix leaving one final horcrux uh, either of Ravenclaw's or Gryffindor's, it's unclear at this point uh, what that could be. Um, but Harry, I think Harry also, and I don't know if this was fan service on the part of J.K. Rowling, Harry said, well, you know, it, they could be anything. It could, it could be like a tin can, and Dumbledore's like, nah, you're thinking of port keys. But if, if, if Voldemort had taken the most simple of objects, like a tin can... There'd be no way that you could possibly track something like that down. Right. Right. But this is what Dumbledore explains in this chapter. Voldemort, and I guess this is just a problem with Voldemort. He wanted to put his soul into these iconic pieces of Wizarding World history. If it were any of us, and I'm sorry that I'm considering about making, about 
making horcruxes for myself again but if it were any of us yeah i would put it in a completely random object that nobody would ever find because that is the way to ensure that i would live forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a double-edged sword because voldemort in putting them in these hugely recognizable sought-after objects thinks he's strengthening himself he thinks that those objects innate magical properties will further protect his soul. He's really overdoing it. But in fact, it gives Harry more of a, a guidebook and anybody really more of a, a like a to-do list on how to find these Horcruxes and destroy them. So it, it ends up making Voldemort's plan a lot more discernible, which is a huge problem for him in the end. Mm. And Harry, he also asks an interesting question of Dumbledore, and and that's whether or not Voldemort can feel when one of his horcruxes are destroyed. And the film does a very good job of this, but Dumbledore makes it clear that Voldemort is so immersed in evil and these crucial parts of himself have been detached for so long, he does not feel as we do. This is one of those things that works for the book. But it works for the movie, and it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Because in the movies, he does feel it. In the books, he doesn't. And it, it – I mean, I understand the connection. Harry goes all weird side-eyed um, during the movies whenever a Horcrux is destroyed, and so does Voldemort. It ups the tension. I get it. This is one of those things, though. The book's got to be the books, and the movie got to be the movie. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Although I could have done without all of Rafe Fiennes' weird sound effects <laughs> that he made. <laughs> well, and also, like, at one point, like, remember when he announced that Harry Potter was dead? Yeah. And he did that really weird laugh. And dance. <laughs> yeah. He did, like, a little shimmy. <laughs> did he? No. no shimmy, yeah, he shimmy, did. shake. I need to watch this movie again. And he hugged Draco, which was really weird. That was, was the thing so the internet weird. still can't stop talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of understood it. I mean, Voldemort is just elated. He he did it. He won. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he's going to do weird things in that moment to celebrate. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, speaking of, Andrew, I know your favorite book uh, that J.K. Rowling's written is The Tales of Beetle the Bard. Um, but I wanted to mention, uh, that this is the, all of this, this chapter and everything is very similar to one of the stories in Beetle the Bard, not the tale of the three brothers, but, uh, the warlock's hairy heart, which is my favorite of the tales of Beetle the Bard. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about a wizard who takes his heart out of his chest, stores it sort of for safekeeping away from himself. And revisits it after years, uh, only to find that it has grown and taken on kind of a life of itself. It's very horcruxy. And I just got a shout out because I love that story. Yeah. Have you guys read this? Do you guys have opinions on it as a story of Beetle the Bard? I like the analogy. I haven't read it in a while. So yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a good one. I would encourage all of our listeners to revisit it because um, it's short, you know, like all of them mm-hmm. are. Well, I do have the illustrated edition now, so maybe I will oh. open it up and read it for you. Cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Dumbledore and Harry are going to be going on a little trip together. Yeah, and this is another. I was like shocked how Dumbledore was like, yeah, you can come along, of course. <laughs> Dumbledore usually so 
you know, wanting to do everything by himself. Clearly, he's been doing that this book. And now, all of a sudden, Harry's like, "I can I come? And Dumbledore being so receptive to that, it was pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's because Dumbledore can see the timeline and he knows where things are going. And ultimately, he needs Harry to witness Snape murdering him. And then, Laura, you put in an interesting point here about the really the prophecy and the prophecy gets a lot of airtime in this in yeah. this chapter, and uh, I just think that what what you say here is is relevant to Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. So I Dumbledore has this great rant about tyrants and how they create self fulfilling prophecies, specifically talking about Voldemort um, choosing to make the prophecy real, right? And he talks about how. Um, you know, the Hall of Prophecies, do you think that most of those prophecies ever came true? No, they didn't, because the people they were about didn't choose to make them true. But Voldemort did choose in this case to do it. And uh, he he has this great line about how tyrants always end up bestowing power on the people that they choose to hunt. And this just has so much more meaning now that we know more about Grindelwald. Like, this isn't just coming from an academic place of study. This is real-world experience that is informing mm. this statement. Yeah. These are some big thoughts for from Dumbledore. And I actually read this area a couple of times because it's just a moment of such brutal honesty. And Dumbledore is getting a little desperate, it seems like, because Harry, it takes him a minute to grasp the situation. Though, of course, he does at the end. Um I, I really like this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and this whole tyrants thing, like I, I'm okay with viewing it from a distance. I don't know how I feel about it upon closer scrutiny. It services the story quite well. I don't know, like world history wise, what, you know, I guess I'd have to know enough about history to say that that was always the case, or if this is like a lofty expectation that, People are going to be given special powers by a tyrant they have to rise up against. I just, you know, I don't know necessarily how it applies to the real world, but it works decently well enough to see Dumbledore's passion to talk about it in this chapter of this book. I think it does apply. Yeah, using uh, Grindelwald as like, uh, hey, this means him kind of a thing does excite me. Like it, it makes more sense that... Dumbledore is talking about a specific occurrence in his own history rather than broadly generalizing world history. I think that it does apply to world history, though, because obviously tyrants in the real world aren't bestowing magical powers upon the people that they're trying to subjugate. But ultimately, those people would not have the drive or the stamina to stand up and defeat those tyrants had those tyrants not started trying to pursue nefarious missions in the first place. And I think that's the point that Dumbledore is trying to make here in this, in this sort of like tirade he goes on is like, this really does boil down to Voldemort's choice. And had Voldemort chosen to ignore the prophecy, then Harry's parents wouldn't be dead. Yeah. Harry wouldn't be the chosen one. So all he had to do was just live out a normal life. Not kill anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not split his soul. Yep. Eric, you had uh, one final point here. Yeah, about the mirror of Erised. 
this is this goes so low under the radar here, but Dumbledore says uh, words to the effect of, "Do you know how remarkably few wizards could look into the mirror of Erised and see what it was that you saw?" And on one hand, I'm thinking, "Oh, you know, Harry saw his dead parents this whole time." We're like, Harry just wants to be close to his family. But what Dumbledore adds a little context in this chapter. Dumbledore tells Harry that he saw the way to defeating Voldemort in the mirror. And we're not even talking about him finding the stone in his pocket. Harry seeing his loved ones was actually seeing that love is what's going to kill Voldemort. And I'm kind of blown away by this, particularly because I just read it on the most recent reread. I realized that Dumbledore is actually talking about the mirror told Harry, because what Harry really wanted, I guess, as a, as not as a retcon, but as a, reinforming was not to see his dead parents and be with them again, but the, to defeat Voldemort who killed his family. Uh, so the mirror showed him the way to doing that was to love your, like where you came from. Mm-hmm. That just, did you guys like know this before? Cause that just blew my mind. Well, I think it was just an important moment because I think as Dumbledore says, most people would not see something that relates to, family love in it most people like he would see something material like doesn't he see socks or well well he sees physical love between him and grindelwald i was gonna say he says he sees socks right 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 (laughs) true Yeah. yeah so i don't know i think it's just it it's just speaks to the fact that harry you know ron sees himself what on the quidditch team i think yeah it just speaks to the fact that Harry, the most important thing to him, the thing that he desires most is his being with his family again and maybe receiving the love of his family. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. I just I love that, you know, that's one of the enduring questions of the series happened in chapter 12 or 13 of book one. But, you know, what Dumbledore sees in the mirror of Erised, what Harry sees in the mirror of Erised. So crazy that, you know, most of the way through book six we're still getting additional context that informs why Harry saw what he saw or how and what it means. I just, it's a mark of a good series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this particular chapter really just, it hits on so many different things and it's, it's really because Dumbledore is willing to just cut to the chase finally and, and not really beat around the bush and just, be straight up with Harry about a lot of things, not everything as we know, but, but a lot. And and I think for readers, a lot that we had been waiting to learn and, and to hear directly from Dumbledore himself. So I think that's a good place to, to wrap up this chapter. Okay. Harry and Dumbledore are going to go off hunting Horcruxes. Yep. Fun little adventure they're about to take. Yeah. Little picnic, little field trip. <laughs> and now, Let's rename the chapter. What's yours, Eric? I called this Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, Chapter 23, Nosy Portraits. Mm. Um, This whole time Harry and Dumbledore are going on this Horcrux uh, discussion, every single headmaster of Hogwarts, past and present, uh, are are just craning their necks, looking in. One man even takes out his ear trumpet. Uh, I guess he hears better that way. So... Yeah, nosy port- nosy darn portraits should mind their own darn business. He wanted to hear every single detail. It- I get uh, so yeah. so why I mean, can they actually see into the memory? I don't or were they you know I don't think so. No. 
But isn't they just want to overhear Harry and Dumbledore's actual conversation. Yeah, but isn't a huge security risk to have all of these sentient creatures now in on Voldemort's utter like inner inner plans? Yeah, we know they all talk with each other and hang out. Yeah, and people like Phineas so Nigellus spread quickly. People like Phineas Nigellus Black are like awful people who shouldn't be trusted with that secret. Mm-hmm. Well, and they have multiple portraits. That's exactly it. Right. I mean, they use those portraits to get information quickly from different areas, so we know it works. Yep. Are they able to leave Hogwarts, though? Uh, Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Phineas Nigellus Black is, at the very least, because his other portrait's at, what, Grimald Place? Yeah, you're right. So Mm -hmm. any one of them could be a spy for Voldemort, or the dark side, or have a a famous portrait in a Death Eater's home that goes and is like, hey, listen, your boys figured out, you know, huge, huge plot hole, potentially. Mm. But presumably Dumbledore trusts all the people in these portraits. Like, yeah, one of them could be a spy, but this is where Dumbledore pretty much lives. And if he doesn't know all of these portraits very intimately, mm. then uh, he's made a big mistake. That's fair. I almost wonder if they're not sworn, but in a way obliged to just work with whomever the headmaster is at the time. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was wondering too. Little blood pack. Yeah. <laughs> a paint pack. Yeah. And if they don't, he'll just torch their portrait. That's right. <laughs> and your paint melts away. What's your chapter title, Laura? I called mine Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, chapter 23. All you need is love. Oh. Mm. Because Harry has that moment where he's like, it's kind of funny in the chapter. Dumbledore's like, you have the one thing that Voldemort doesn't have. And Harry's like, God, I know, love. (laughs) Sounds so lame, Dumbledore. Yeah, and it does sound lame. (laughs) I went with Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, chapter 23, That Night in Dumbledore's Office. And mine is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, chapter 23, The Seven. Because that's important. <laughs> and now MVPs of the week. Yep. I gave mine to Nearly Headless Nick for, I don't know, having the hot goss. Showing up at the right time. Always knowing uh, that Dumbledore is back. He heard it from the Bloody Baron who heard it from, well, I guess Dumbledore himself. So, yeah, MVP for me. The hot goss. I said Tom Riddle. I know we don't like the guy, but he's good at what he does. <laughs> wow. He had a good week. And you're giving me crap for wanting to create horcruxes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I went with the Bloody Baron because there's no way that nearly headless Nick would have been able to tell Harry that Dumbledore was back unless the Bloody Baron had uh, seen him. Yeah. And mine was Lug... <laughs> young... Lughorn. Lug... Young... Young Slughorn. <laughs> because uh, the information that he does hand over, of course, is very important to the Harry Potter series. So... And again, I know I'm giving up this theme that I respect people who create horcruxes. uh, (laughs) Andrew, are you a Slytherin? Look, it. yeah, well, I converted two years ago. You converted? (laughs) Wait, what were you before? A Gryffindor. Jeez, man, you just flew from one extreme to the other. It was January 2017, and I said to myself, new year, new me. And (laughs) I went to the theme park, and I bought the the Slytherin uh sweater 
and that was that. I think Pottermore may have told me that I was Slytherin too. I can't remember. It just. I seems feel like cool. Slytherin actually makes sense for you. Oh, not, okay. Not not because you're a murderer or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Based on what I know about you. <laughs> no, just like the the fact that Slytherins are very savvy people. Oh wow! Thank I you. feel, and and you're a very savvy person. So. <sighs> you're raising a good point here. <laughs> So it's time now for Quizitch. Yes, last week's question, who tells Nearly Headless Nick about Dumbledore's whereabouts? We just touched on this. The correct answer is the Bloody Baron. We have a slight alteration to how we're playing this game now, uh, because we are, of course, expanding on our social media platforms, thanks to our new social media manager, Jewel. Uh, what's going to happen, she's asked me to let you know, that we are playing Quizitch on Instagram on Thursdays. It's going to be added to our story. So to give you guys each time to listen to our episodes each week, the new Quizits question each week will be posted on Thursdays as our at MuggleCastPod story. And then that's where in the story you'll be able to, from what I understand, sound like an old man when I'm saying this, but I think you'll be able to like reply to the story via the thing on thursdays yeah you yeah okay you can post a question in your instagram story and people can just tap the question and write an answer okay so that's very interactive yeah that's happening on thursdays it's pretty cool stuff uh congratulations to karen sass jennifer and willis john tubbs Haley the amazing weasley amanda graff reese without her spoon (laughs) marajo fca thope 2425 Shauna Krieger, S. Fox, Coriander Gay, Voyage with Helen, and Fluffy McNutter's cosplay for uh, winning on Instagram. And I think in the future, we'll just do like a congratulations on our story. So the Instagram winners will stay on Instagram. And as always, you can play this game on Twitter using hashtag Quizich. Correct answers. This week came from A Man Has No Name, Retta Gambo, Elf Owl, Lara Catherine, Karen Frode, Justice for the Fat Lady, <laughs> Dumpy the Bumblebee, Sarah Davis, Potter Hobbit, Real Slim Brady, Sarah A.K. Weensy, Megan, Tara, and Stacey Davis and Super Mandy. So congratulations. Everybody. Why do we need justice for the fat lady? Can you please answer that question in your next Twitter name? Yeah. Justice for the fat lady? Because Micah is calling for her to be torched. She had one moment of cheekiness. Well, did they just answer Quizich in the last hour? <laughs> right. <laughs> or did they just know. know what we were going to do to her? Yeah, I have no idea. And what's I this mean, week's... she did get her portrait slashed up in book three, so maybe. Yeah. Oh yeah, still feel, that's what they're talking still feel about. bad about her for that. Well, who do we expect justice for in the next episode? Is it the fat lady, or do we need to pick another character for somebody to send in a voicemail about? Young Slughorn. Yeah. So next week's Quizich question uh, comes, as always, from our forthcoming chapter that we'll be reading. How long does Felix Felicis take to make? Huh. All right. So if you would like to get in touch with us, go to MuggleCast.com and there is a contact form. There is a button to the contact form right at the top of the site. You can also email us directly, MuggleCast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Twitter.com slash MuggleCast. Or hit us up on Instagram. We are checking the DMs, so you can slide into those if you wish to reach out to us that way. Or, of course, you can call us, 1-920-368-4453. Just try to keep your message about a minute long and make sure you are in a quiet place. We would also love your support at patreon.com 
slash MuggleCast. We're closing in on a thousand patrons. It'd be pretty great if we hit a thousand patrons in the months ahead. And once you do pledge, you are going to have instant access to lots of benefits, including a plethora of bonus MuggleCast installments. You will also get early access to the show because you can tune into our live streams. And thanks to everybody who is listening live right now, some of you, um, give a shout out to some of you, Rebecca, Ashley, Ricky, JY, Morgan, Petra. Thanks for tuning in on this Saturday morning. We recorded early. You will, you will, you may have noticed us slowly waking up over the course of this episode. Yeah. Well, and it's 420, so I mean, we generally would be a little bit <laughs> sluggish. Oh, I don't man, partake. Micah, I'm sober. I love that you brought that up. <laughs> Uh, next week we will just do a discussion on marijuana in the Harry Potter series. <laughs> who uses it and why? Let's think. Who, Did J.K. Rowling any? If we could all name um, one character, maybe we'll save it for next week. Who do we think? Sprout. Well, well, who do we think uses it, or who do we think could really benefit from it? <laughs> I say use it, and I say Trelawney. <laughs> um, I think definitely the Weasley twins, Fred and George. They're for sure using it. Um, I think Umbridge could benefit. <laughs> <laughs> chill out i bet draco and crab and goyle have all dabbled in it i can see point. hagrid down in that hut there's <laughs> <laughs> all this smoke coming out people are like oh wow he's got a nice fire going on in there <laughs> nope <laughs> uh, all right <laughs> thanks everybody for listening we'll see you next week i'm andrew i'm eric i'm micah and i'm laura bye bye bye, bye.